0: As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. The Resurrection Changes Everything. A talk by Father Dave All Alright, so, the topic of this session is how the resurrection changes everything. Now, My personal belief is that we don't talk enough about heaven. Um, I'm always fascinated how everywhere in the church we run Lenten groups. I don't think I've ever seen a church that runs an Easter group. Um, We don't reflect enough on the resurrection. Like, I think there's very much something in the Catholic spirituality where we're very much focused on Good Friday and we have the whole time of Lent, feeling bad about ourselves and how bad we are about sinning. And we get to Easter Sunday and we're like, whew, thank goodness that's over. (laughs) Let's go back to normal. (laughs) But I I think it's tragic because we miss the whole point. Um, It only makes sense if we understand the resurrection. And I think this is where we need to be proclaiming the resurrection more and more. Because you can't really understand the Christian life without it. Without the resurrection, the Christian life is simply about trying harder, trying to be good. Whereas the resurrection changes everything, it changes the whole perspective of how we see life. Um, Now, a very simple way of demonstrating this. Okay, I want you to imagine, I know the food here has been very good this weekend. Imagine that you haven't eaten for two weeks. Okay, if you could just try and get an idea what that feels like. Okay, you're weak your stomach is in pain, okay, you are just famished. Um, Now, you are so starving, desperately hungry, and I have a cookie, okay? Now, this is where we test to see any gambling people amongst us, okay? Because you've got a choice. You can either have what you can see in front of you Or you can go through that door at the back of the room and have what's in there. Now you don't know what's in there. There might be food, there might be nothing. The food might be good, the food might be poison. What are you gonna choose? You want the cookie or the room? You say the room, okay, we gotta gamble. You can only have (laughs) one. You're saying the room. You're saying the cookie? Cookie? Cookie, okay. So we've got a few people who are gamblers and are prepared to risk it all, but it sounds like most of you are saying the cookie, because you can see it, it's right here, okay, it's yours. Um, and even then, I'm sure you're probably a bit conflicted even if you chose the room. You're like, eh, maybe, it's good, maybe not. Okay, now imagine the same scenario, you're, you're starving, have it eaten for two weeks, and I say you can have the cookie or you can have the room. But just at that moment, Grace comes out of that room And she has got food smeared all over her face, and there's like spaghetti hanging out of her pockets, and she's like holding like massive chocolate cake, and she's just like groaning in pain, saying, "Oh, there is so much food, a thousand people could eat for a thousand years and not get through it all." Now, who wants the cookie and who wants the room? (laughs) You're just trying to be rebellious. So at that point, everyone's pretty much saying they want the room except for you. It's yours. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Enjoy. That's all you're getting. So pretty much I think that's a good way of understanding the whole story of humanity. (laughs) That there has always been something inside the human heart which we've felt this sense that there is something more. You know, right from the earliest archeological records, we we know that people had a sense of the afterlife. They had a sense that there was maybe something, but no one knew whether it was good or bad. Yeah, and and you see this through so many of different mythologies. You know, is is the afterlife a wonderful thing? Is it a tormenting thing? Do you have to take food with you? You know, some countries where they would bury people with food in their coffin just in case. Um, But people were always gambling. It was like a bet each way. Like, do I try and live for that place or do I live for now? The second scenario we used, I think, is closer to Christianity. You know, where we have now had someone who has come back through that door, resurrected Jesus Christ, and he said, guys, it's worth it. Give everything. You know, don't focus on now, focus on there. That's kind of what we, where we find ourselves as Christians. But as I say, we, we sadly don't spend enough time talking about it or reflecting on it. And so when we talk about this battle that the church is in, in this secular age, everyone is focused on the now. Everyone's focused on this moment. And I think that's because we're not, we're not selling eternity very well. Uh, we, we need to be reminding people what their true homeland is. So, what actually is this thing we call, call heaven? Well, firstly, what, what is the resurrection? Um, it is weird, okay? As, as many other parts of our faith, it is a little bit strange. Um, I don't know whether you ever stop and think about this when, when we pray the creed. Pretty much every part of what we say is, on the surface, complete madness, okay? We are saying that not only did... The all-powerful, supreme, infinite God became the size of one single human cell in the Incarnation. Um, and then the all-powerful God became so helpless, you know, the, the God who spins the planets on his fingers became so helpless that he couldn't move unless someone picked him up. That's pretty crazy. Okay, reflect on that, because that's, that's the core of our faith, the Incarnation. But we're then saying that this God decided to enter into all of our suffering and somehow save the world by dying. You know, once again, we are so familiar with that concept, it doesn't shock us anymore. But it should. It should sound extremely strange. Because surely if he is God, he can just click his fingers and all the evil goes away. And yet God has decided to save the world through failure, really, by allowing himself to be defeated and killed. Now there is something in that which you need to try to understand, you've got to really reflect deeply on that because you, you can't understand your faith without it. Um, but then what we're now saying is that he came back to life, you know, not just resuscitated but resurrected. You know, so. Throughout the Bible, many other people have come back to life. You know, Lazarus died for four days and came back to life, but he then still died again. Jesus did something very different in that he came back with a risen, glorified body. Now, it's hard for us to even comprehend or begin to think what this even looks like. The little bit that we see in the scriptures suggests that it is, it is quite strange because he is human and yet somehow is no longer bound by the laws of physics. Okay, so you've got the apostles lock, hiding in a locked room and suddenly Jesus is in, is in their midst. Okay, he's, <coughs> it, it doesn't even say that he walked through the wall. Like he's just there, appears. Um, and yet he is physical. He's not a ghost because I think it's in Luke's gospel. They go to great lengths to show how he started to eat broiled fish. Um, a ghost can't eat. Okay, it will just drop through to the floor. Um, so he is physical, he is body, he is flesh, and yet he is transformed, glorified. And what then becomes the understanding is that we are going to experience the same thing. So if you have a read in 1 Corinthians 15, St Paul has a, the whole chapter talking about the resurrection. And it's a very significant chapter to read. If you I hope you got your Bibles here this weekend. Um, sit down and read it because what he says is if jesus is not raised from the dead then we of all people are the most to be pitied is the line that he uses now basically what he's saying is there's a lot of people who would say that jesus is a good moral teacher and we can follow jesus based on his good morals paul is saying you're wasting your time if, if you are following Christ simply because he's a good moral teacher, go home. That's, that's effectively what Paul's saying. <coughs> he's saying the only reason why Christianity makes sense is if we believe in the resurrection of the dead, that, that we will also be resurrected, that we are guaranteed of eternal life. Now, the reason he says that is basically because of what I was saying in the last session. Paul's understanding is that for you to be a Christian and to live as a Christian basically means you need to give everything. Okay, so if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, then I can just be a good person and live life my own way, being good. But if Jesus is actually Lord of the universe, if he is actually risen from the dead, then I'm called to give everything. And be united with him upon the cross. You know, live my whole life as this continual outpouring of love for the world. To the point where I've got nothing left. And it probably doesn't take you long to realise that you can only do that if you know that you've got something afterwards. And this is what you see in, well right, right from the earliest time in the Acts of the Apostles. So so you know the story of St. Stephen. So Stephen was a deacon. Stephen was was a Jewish man. Um, We don't know much about him, but we could probably assume that he was probably married. He probably had kids. Um, He would have had a lot of responsibility and obligations. He is challenged because the Jewish people say that he's preaching a heresy. And he stands up and he gives the best defense to say, I believe what you believe. And he could have left it at that and gone home to his wife and his children and his dog and lived happily ever after. But if you read the story in the Acts of the Apostles, he doesn't just defend himself. He then adds on one extra paragraph where he basically then calls them to conversion. And he says, but hang on, what about you? You are the ones who crucified Christ. You need to repent. And at that point, they pick up stones and they kill him. Madness, absolute madness. You know, we, we we celebrate Stephen, but how often do we stop and think about his widow, you know, or his children, um, those left behind? Um, what would compel a person to do that, you know, to preach the gospel, knowing that that was probably going to be his last breath? Um, the only thing that could compel a person to do that is the knowledge that we're not actually going to miss out on anything here. You know, if, if, if you're so convinced of the resurrection, that gives you a permission to love recklessly. You know, to love without ever counting the cost. And Because really what, what Stephen did there was an act of love. Like he was, he actually cared about their salvation enough to preach to them even though there was a risk that he was going to get killed. Now, you go back down to the whole history of the church and you see the same thing repeated again and again. Um, Every time, people are martyred. They uh, basically make a decision for the resurrection. They're basically saying, I believe in the resurrection so much that I'm prepared to risk everything here. Um, You you look at the... Well, the the early church in Rome was a great example of this. Um, The... The city of Rome was probably very similar to where we are now in our modern world in terms of the immorality, um, in a sense, the secularism, even though it was a very spiritual, religious city, it was pretty much just focused on hedonism and pleasure. Um, and the early church Christians found it very hard to impact with the gospel. They were having a few successes here and there, but by and large, the, the people of Rome didn't care about them at all. They they just laughed at them. The turning point, the, the point where Rome pretty much was converted, I, I, I forget what year it was, but there was a major plague hit the city and they couldn't control it. They, they had no way of stopping this outbreak of this disease. And so all the wealthy citizens of Rome basically packed up and fled the city and went out to the country. And Any of their relatives who were sick, they just abandoned them and left them. And they just expected, we're just going to leave everyone in the city to die and we'll come back when they're dead um, and then burn the bodies and get back home with life. The only people who stayed were the Christians. And the Christians basically said, well, we are going to love these people. Now, just remember the context. You know, a few weeks earlier, these were the same people who were sending them to the Colosseum and setting them on fire to, as, like, torches to light the streets of Rome. Um, they weren't their friends, okay? They had no kickback, as we were saying before. Like there, was, there was nothing at all to feel like they, they deserved to help these people. These were their enemies. These were the enemies of Christianity. And the Christians decided to stay in a city filled with the plague to care for their enemies, and they proceeded to tend to them and help them and nurse them and then bury them when they died. And the Roman citizens were absolutely astounded, saying, why are you doing this? You, you know how we've been treating you. Why are you caring for us? But then also they started to become amazed because the Christians weren't dying. Um, now, partly because they'd, they'd been so exposed to the disease themselves. They'd already developed an immunity, mostly. And so, so this was partly an amazing example of love, but then the Romans also believed that it was a miraculous thing, that somehow they were graced by God because they weren't dying from the plague. And as soon as the plague subsided, they realised, hang on, we've got this wrong. We, we need to now follow you because you are following the true God. But on, on the part of the Christians, that was an absolutely reckless action. That was them choosing to love even though it would potentially kill them. Like, like, and once again, think of this. Like, like you are a small, tiny church. If you die, Christianity dies with you. Like, like there's, there's a real incentive there to also run to the mountains and look after yourselves. Um, you know, and yet they risked everything simply trusting that God would look after them. And, and as it was, that became the turning point where, where Rome started to really seriously convert and become Christian. But it's, it's that firm belief that we are not living for now. This is not the main show. And so, so what you end up with is pretty much the, what, what should be the catchphrase of Christianity is that death is not fatal. And okay, this is what we need to be screaming from the rooftops. Death is not fatal. You know, we live in this perpetual fear of death. Now, if, if I was to say, who here is afraid of death? Most of you would probably say, oh, I'm not afraid of death. Of course not. And, but, but the reality is you spend a lot of energy trying to make sure that you don't die. <laughs> you pretty much make every decision of your life trying to avoid dying Um, you would have so many different things to protect you. Okay, I've got my insurance, I've got my phone, I've got a helicopter on standby, I've got a medical team on call, whatever it is, just to make sure that nothing bad can possibly happen. Um, And therefore, we're not afraid of death (laughs) because we've taken every precaution to make sure that it's a distant reality. How can we then live really not afraid of death. You know, can we live in this knowledge that I don't have to try to hold on until I'm 90? You know, if, if I die this afternoon, so be it. You know, can, can you live with that sort of freedom? Can you live with that sort of, I don't know, just surrender to God that whenever he calls you, you're ready to go? I don't know how you you react to that when you hear that. Um, It's it's important, as I've been saying all the way through these talks, be aware of the reaction that comes up inside of you because that speaks something of where you're at. So often I hear Christians really angry at God when people die or, or when people are diagnosed with cancer or some serious disease and suddenly they're angry and I think it reveals the fact that we've, we've missed the point. You know, I, I can understand that you, <laughs> there's a very natural grief that we don't want to lose the people that we, we love. Um, we, we don't want to lose our opportunity to care for our children and things like that. But there's something unhealthy when we're clinging on to this world. You know, we're holding on to it as though this is all we've got and we're terrified of anything else. That, that says to me that we've, we've really misunderstood the promise of Jesus Christ. You know, we we fail to understand what it is that he's given us in this gift of the resurrection. If, if my eyes are firmly focused on that, I should be very happy just to let go of everything and go. But that's difficult. <laughs> Trust me, it's very difficult. Um, last year, I was diagnosed with skin cancer. Um, just before, just the beginning of Lent. So it made probably an amazing Lent, probably the best Lent I've ever had because I kind of had this journey into, wow, where's this going to go? Um, and as it's all good now. They, they had to have three goes doing surgery on my neck to cut it all out. Um, um, but it, it actually kind of took me into this place of like, you know, for years I've been preaching this. For years I've been talking to people about how, you know, you should be ready to go anytime you want. And suddenly I was like, ah, this could be my moment. (laughs) Am I ready? And the things that came up were fascinating. Um, I'd have to say I I, I really was like, but basically it was at stage three. Once it's stage four, it's bad news. Um, And particularly melanoma goes bad very quickly. Um, And I was on a waiting list for surgery. So I was just like, oh, how's this going to turn out (laughs) before I get there? Um, in a sense, what, the, the actual idea of dying didn't bother me, I'd have to say. What really disturbed me was the whole thing of insignificance. And, and this was the fascinating journey that God took me on because it was realising, like, is that it? Is that all I've achieved? You know, if, if this does go bad and if this, you know, all wraps up in the next couple of years... Am I happy to have not achieved anything? You know, to have not left anything behind, to have not left a legacy. And I was just, like I said, I was absolutely fascinated by how deep that actually was in me. Um, there is something about human like the human heart. Like there is this deep insignificance where. It kind of comes back to just that need to be loved. You know, like we, we, we want to know that we're actually valuable, that we're actually, we're actually doing something here. Um, the idea that we could just die in a second and then be forgotten within a few months, that, I think that torments people. Um, you know, and, and I think this is part of what we're gra- grasping onto. You know, this, this desperate desire to live every single moment now, it's almost a desire to try to make sure that we're not wasting our time. Um, you know, somehow I've got to try and make sure that every moment is going to give me the pleasure it needs. But like I say, I think, I think there's something where we really need to meditate deeply on this so that we can be completely surrendered to God. You know, if, if to be a Christian means to give your whole life to Jesus Christ, you also need to be, be prepared to give your death to Jesus Christ as well. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. Like, like you need to be prepared to say, God, my whole life is yours and there's no conditions attached. Okay, like if, if you want me to live until I'm 130, go for it. If you want me to die tomorrow, go for it. Um, my life is in your hands. You do the rest of it. That is probably the hardest thing to ever do, you know, to make that absolute act of surrender. But what I want to suggest to you is if you can do that, you will, you will discover true joy. And, and you will start to live a phenomenal life. Now, once again, just personal reflections from, from the journey I went on last year. But I, I would say, I think part of the reason why people don't achieve things in their life is because they're trying really hard to achieve things in their life. If that makes sense. <laughs> the, the fear of insignificance is actually one of the biggest things that holds us back from doing amazing things. We're so afraid of not being something great that it kind of means that we're trying really hard to do it ourselves. We're trying really hard to leave a legacy, to leave our mark on the world. And I think what that means is there's so many opportunities which we miss. There's so many times we actually hold ourselves back from really loving people, really caring for people, because we're actually kind of in this self-preservation mode. I've got to save myself for the important thing to come later on. Whereas there's there's actually kind of like a real freedom that comes when you're reconciled with the idea of death. And you can say, well, let's just love. You know, let's just care for the people in front of me now. Let's just do whatever comes. Um, I think that's the point when you really start to transform the world. You know, so when you, when you look at the people that we hold up as being the great saints, you know, I was talking about Mother Teresa before. I don't think she was trying to create a legacy for herself. I don't think she woke up in the morning saying, I'm going to become the most well-known person ever. I don't think she cared. <laughs> I don't think she expected to be around long enough to, to leave anything. Because you know, if you're going to be caring with people in the gutter in Calcutta, there's a good chance you're going to pick up their diseases and die fairly soon. I think she was, she was in that point of absolute surrender, content with her own insignificance to just say, well, let's just do what we can do today. And God used the rest of it. God made her into something amazing. Um, you know, and so, so there, there is something very powerful in that moment where you say, I give all of my life, I give, I give my death to God. He is now in control of all of it. And what, what that means, it's almost like putting a blank canvas in the hands of a master artist. You're basically saying, you, you make the picture for me. You know, Whereas we're trying to say, don't worry, God, I'll draw the picture, and then you can fill in the gaps. Now, there might be some great artists here, but if it was me, I'd just be drawing a picture of a turtle or something like that. Um, I would spent a long time trying to draw it, and it would look pretty lame. That, that, that's kind of what happens. Like, like if we try and live our life for ourselves, if we try and make ourselves into something great, the best you're going to end up is, is you know, some sort of picture that a five-year-old could do. Um, and you're going to be so attached to it that you'll never let go of it. But I think the whole thing here is if, if you can trust God enough to give him the blank piece of paper and say, you make something beautiful out of my life, you do it. Now, you've got no control over the end product you have no idea what's going to come back. Um, I'd basically say what comes back will be absolutely terrifying, but it'll be an amazing adventure. Um, so much bigger and grander than anything you could dream of. But, but you can only really do that if you have this absolute trust in the resurrection. You know, so, so everything I've been saying through these talks about what it means to really follow Christ, what it means to really surrender your whole life to him, It only makes sense if you believe that you're not going to miss out. So, let's talk about heaven at this point. Because I'm basically saying, you know, we've got to trust that there's a good place we're going to. Is it actually good? Um, Do any of you actually want to go to heaven? Um, You're all good Christians, so you're going to say yes. But um, I reckon you're a bit ambivalent about it. I reckon you're a bit half-hearted because you don't really know where you're going. Um, you know, then it'd, be, it'd be like me saying, you know, do you want to go to this place on the other side of the world you've never heard of? And you're like, oh, it probably sounds interesting. But if you don't, if you don't know what that place is, if you don't know what it looks like, there's never gonna be a desire. Like, like you're not gonna start walking towards it unless you're really in love with the vision of where you're going. And I think this is the thing with heaven, that I, yeah, talking to a lot of people, I get the impression that there's a lot of misunderstanding about where we're going. Um, first, a couple of things, just to throw out to you. I think, firstly, we always think of heaven as being a place. Um, and we then in- inevitably have these sort of primary school images of, you know, a place where there's, like, rivers of chocolate and mountains of ice cream and, you know, all your friends are there and, your you know, your pet budgerigar that you had when you were two is there and... Um, it, it basically becomes like the best of earth for all of eternity. That, that's often the way we imagine heaven. There's no incentive to go there, you know, because if, if it's just the best of earth, then why don't I just get the best of earth now? Like if, like if, it's, an, if it's an earthly paradise, then I can just make a stupid amount of money and get it today. Uh, why would I ever bother sacrificing my life and, you know, caring for poor people, you know, when I can get it now. I think what you find in the scriptures is it it is described of as a a physical place, but much more it's described of of as being a relationship. It is relationship with God. And, And that's the bit that fascinates me, because so often when you get people to describe heaven to them, They'll describe all the wonderful things that are in heaven. Very rarely do they talk about the fact that God is there. You know, it's almost like we leave God out of our image of heaven because he's the boring guy. Like the last thing you want to just spend eternity with God. Um, And so I think this is where our image of heaven actually starts to change how we live our faith here. Heaven is to be immersed in the heart of the Trinity. Heaven is to be actually in the the core of infinite love. Now, when we say infinite love, that probably just goes straight over your head. Classic way I'm trying to explain this. If you imagine all the love you've ever experienced in your life, okay, can you do this for me? Think over all the love you've ever experienced from your parents, your friends, relationships, okay? Imagine all of this in front of you as like a big ball of love. Okay, you got this? Yeah, you're doing this? Okay. Okay, you got this big love ball in front of you. Okay, all the love you've ever experienced. Now, multiply that by every person who's ever lived on earth. It's about 130 billion people. Okay, so think, if you can, try to comprehend all the love that anyone has ever experienced since the dawn of time. Okay, you got that? <laughs> Bit hard to understand at that point, isn't it? But if you imagine how big that ball of love would be, Okay, how intense! Like the the intensity of love that people have experienced. Okay, all the love that has ever been experienced since the dawn of time, and now we take that big ball of love and we place it on top of you at one moment, and so you experience all of that in one moment. What happens to you? Hmm? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you probably die. You probably explode with joy. Um, It'd be be a good way to die. You simply would not be able to contain it. Like, like, you know, when someone does something amazing as a sign of love for you and people tear up and like, oh, I can't cope. But like, that's the tiniest thing. Could you you imagine what it would be like to experience all the love that's ever been experienced? Now, compared to the love that's inside the Trinity, that's like a drop in the ocean. Okay, that's nothing. Um, You know, so to... If that just helps, okay, just just try to start to understand, okay, what actually are we talking about here? Heaven is infinite love. Heaven is being immersed in the fulfillment of everything you've ever desired. Okay. Now, sometimes people have this idea that, okay, when you get to heaven, it's going to be like a sporting stadium where God's in the center and the saints and holy people, they got the good seats and you're going to be way, 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 way back in the cheap seats at the top of the stadium where you need binoculars to see what's going on. Um, that's not what it's going to be. Okay? You are going to be immersed in the heart of the Trinity, whoever you are. okay? Now, in the Catechism, paragraph 260, it says, basically it says, the whole work of God throughout salvation history has been to draw you into the unity of the Trinity says it very explicitly, like, like the whole of God's purpose is to draw you into the heart of the Trinity. So, without going into complicated theology of the Trinity, you basically your Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this infinite communion of love, and you're going to be in the middle, absolutely blissing out for all of eternity. <laughs> okay. That's where you're going. Now, once again, I think a lot of people think of heaven and they probably have never consciously said it, but I think a lot of people feel like heaven is probably not a good place to go because we think of heaven as being the place for the perfect. And like like if you had a gathering of like the most perfect people ever and you walked into the room, would you feel comfortable? No. (laughs) You'd be hiding in the corner hoping that no one notices you and says, hey, how did you get in here? (laughs) You're meant to be in that other place over there. (laughs) <laughs> we live in a world filled with shame where we're constantly hiding our brokenness. We're constantly afraid that people are going to find out who we really are. And I think we naturally then project some of that onto heaven. And we think, "Oh, I'm sure it's nice, but you know, I don't think I really want to be fully known, you know? We always talk about heaven being a place where everything is completely open and vulnerable and everyone knows everything about you. And you're like, I don't think I want that. You see, so, so heaven is not a place for the perfect. Heaven is a place for the forgiven. Those who allowed the grace of God, the mercy of God to do work in them. And so we will, we're not going to be walking around boasting about how, you know, well, I'm greater than you are. You know, and I'd prayed more rosaries than you did. I think it's going to be quite the opposite. I mean, I think we're going to be boasting about how God saved us. You know, I reckon we're gonna be there almost showing off about our sin in the sense of saying, you know, look at how well he rescued me. That's how awesome he is. <laughs> you know, that our our scars will suddenly become like radiant with glory. You know, we'll, we'll almost be boasting of how God has worked to heal us. It is definitely worth it. <laughs> But I, like I say, I think we need to be meditating more, more upon this, you know, to really fall in love with the vision of what is our true homeland. Like we, we are living here in exile is the language we often use. We are living in a place which is not our own. This is not our home. We are living in a place where it's dominated by shame and fear and Christ is trying to draw us back to a place where we are actually free and vulnerable and, and we, we once again have that true innocence that we had in the Garden of Eden. You know, we, we are once again in that place of being naked without shame. And, and that's, that's not just a physical thing, that's, that's more of a thing of the heart. You know, because here we're hiding ourselves all the time. We're trying to hide who we are because we're ashamed. But to be in a place where we are so loved and just immersed in the compassion of God where we can just stand completely open and free. That's what we've got to fall in love with. That's, that's the revelation of Scripture. And it is glorious. Okay? It's worth giving everything for. Now, I think the other thing to say here, how do we get to heaven? Um, it, is, it is purely the mercy of God that gets us there but it's also about the fact that we have allowed ourselves to be transformed by that mercy. You know, so we've got the, sort of the, the classic Protestant understanding, which is if heaven is just a place, then all I need is the ticket to get in. So if I say the magic words that Jesus is my Lord and Saviour, I've got the ticket. Okay. Whatever I do from here doesn't count because I've got my ticket. Okay. As long as I don't throw my ticket away, I'm getting to heaven. The Catholic understanding is much bigger and much more beautiful because what we would say is that heaven is not just a place. Heaven is where you actually enter into the unity of the Trinity. As so many of our great saints would say, you know, back in the early church, they said that God became man so that man could become God. John of the Cross said that we will become divine So so, so where Christ is divine by by virtue of his nature, we'll become divine by virtue of our relationship with Christ. Okay, so we're actually going to be drawn into his divinity in some way. It's hard for us to comprehend this. You know, like, it's not that we're going to become another God, but we're actually going to be drawn into the heart of of the Trinity. And so what that means is that there needs to be a complete transformation of who I am. I can't get there as an ordinary human being. It doesn't work, okay? There has to be a profound transformation of who I am as a human being. So basically, how much time have I got? Okay, read a quick explanation of the whole Bible. Um, <clears throat> God creates the world. He then speaks love to the world. We reject that love, okay? If you imagine a young man Kneels down before his beloved, pulls out an engagement ring and says, I want to give my whole life to you. She looks at the engagement ring and says, Sweet, I've always wanted one of those. Thank you. Takes the engagement ring, kicks him in the head, pushes him into the mud and runs off. Okay? (laughs) That's what we did in the Garden of Eden. Okay? That was us. Okay? God presented creation to us as an engagement (coughs) ring. And we said, thanks, we'll have that. You can disappear right now. We don't want the relationship. We want the creation. Okay, that was basically how it started. God then spent the rest of the next few thousand years chasing after us, saying, Look, we started badly, can we kind of reconcile this? Um, But a little bit like that girl running off, okay, boyfriend chases after her, and she now freaks out, thinking, He's stalking me. Um, (laughs) You know, let me take out some sort of AVO against him or something. Like, we kept running and kept running away from God. He keeps sending prophets, okay? It's like sending his friends and messengers saying, look, you missed the point. He actually wants to love you. He wants to be in a relationship with you. But we're afraid that he's going to take away creation. We're terrified that he's going to take our, our precious, okay? Our own. <laughs> um, now, he chases us, he chases us. By the time you get to the prophet Hosea, he starts to speak really explicitly. He's like, hang on, I want to be married to you, okay? So prophet Hosea comes and he says, I'm going to lure her into the wilderness, and there I'm going to speak tenderly to her heart, and I'll betroth her to myself. She'll no longer call me my my master, but she'll now call me my husband. You know, so what he's trying to say is like, forget the engagement ring, it's about me. Okay. Now, now, we're still clinging on. Like, as much as you are all faithful young Catholics, you're still desperately clinging on to that engagement ring, and you're afraid that if you really let God into your life, he's going to take it from you. That's, that's the nature of our hearts. Okay, that's the whole battle of, oh, I don't know whether I really want to give my life to Jesus. Um, Jesus comes in, so, so he realizes, I've now got to come and reveal myself to her. I've got to try and win her back. And so he comes and he basically reveals his heart to us through his ministry. As he is ministering to the poor, the broken, the the sinners. And he he basically says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if, if you see my love and my compassion and you're moved by that, you've now seen the heart of God. Okay, you can trust him. He wants to be in relationship with you, an intimate relationship. Come back. And so he then leads this small group of his disciples to a point where he now says, you are now representing the whole world. You know, So in me committing myself, making a covenant with you, I'm now re- re- renewing this covenant with the whole world. And so what he does is he gathers with them at the Last Supper and he speaks to them words which they would have understood very well. Okay, now in the first century Judaism, when a young man was getting married to a bride, there was a whole betrothal ceremony before the wedding. And basically, what would happen was there would be a meal, and over the course of the meal, the father would hand a cup of wine to the son, and he would then go across and give it to his beloved, and he would say, This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Those were basically paraphrasing of the words used to say, "I'm going to marry you." Okay, so the Last Supper, Jesus sits down with his disciples and he fills a cup of wine, and he says, "This is the cup of the new covenant." Now they would have understood, okay, because they were Jewish. We we read and we're like, "Oh, that's the Eucharist," Um, but for them it had this whole deeper meaning because they were like, "Whoa, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you saying?" These are the words of a betrothal ceremony. Why are you saying this to us right now? But what he's trying to say there is, okay, I'm God and I'm trying to win you back. I'm trying to win you, my people, back into this relationship. And so the Eucharist becomes the wedding ceremony, basically. You know. So next time you're at Mass, have a look at it because it's very similar. You've got the bridegroom up the front, And you, the bride, walk down the aisle. The bridegroom basically says, this is my body given for you. And you say, amen. You know, I do. That's basically what you're saying. Um, And then what happens is you take the bridegroom into yourself and think about that for a moment. Because if Jesus is part of the Trinity and Jesus is now inside of you, at that moment, you're inside the Trinity. Okay. Don't know if that blows your mind a little bit that means pretty much at that moment, you're in heaven. Okay, because if, if heaven is to be at the heart of the Trinity, right there at that moment, you are in heaven. Probably doesn't feel like it, because you know, the organ's out of tune, and the choir's off key, and your stomach's rumbling, and you wanna to go to get some lunch. But I, I think what's gonna happen is that when you die and go to heaven, you're gonna suddenly realize, hang on, we've been here before. This is really familiar. Um, you're going to realise that you're actually there every Sunday or if you're lucky every day, you've been there. Um, But that's the whole thing. Like like you've been drawn into a relationship. You've been drawn into a relationship of infinite love. Now, the reason why I've spent so long trying to explain this to you is because if you understand where you're going and if you're in love with the destination, everything in your life will start to change towards that. Okay, now, I still didn't finish what I was going to say. I'm getting distracted myself. To understand the full Catholic understanding of salvation, if we are destined to enter into the heart of the Trinity, we need to become like God. Don't want to put the pressure on you, but that's basically your calling. Um, Now, what we mean by that is exactly what is said in the first letter of John. Okay, 1 John chapter 4. God is love. Anyone, anyone who lives in love lives in God and God lives in them. The famous line, I'm sure you've heard it. The important thing is then the next line that comes after that. I think it's 1 John four eleven. Um, he basically says, We will have confidence on the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in the world. So God is love. That is what God is. God is love. On the day of judgment, we will have confidence because as he is, so have we become in the world. So what John's trying to say is we, our vocation, our job is to become love. Because if heaven is love, if God is love, and we are meant to be immersed into that love, basically anything in me which is not love has to be transformed has to be burnt away, has to be purified. Now, that's basically the whole theology of John of the cross, if you sit down and read his stuff. His whole thing is focused on the end goal. We are meant to be immersed into the Trinity, and so anything in me which is not love has to be purified, has to be transformed. Now, this is why having a good understanding of heaven is important, because it starts to change the way you live on earth. If heaven is just a place, some eternal paradise, the natural thing is that you're going to try to live an earthly paradise. If heaven is love, then you're going to live a life which is going to transform you into love. It changes, if the destination changes, then the whole of the journey changes as well. It, 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 the most natural thing is that you are going to start to live a life which is going to transform you into the likeness of heaven or the likeness of God. And, and I think this is what makes sense of the whole of Catholic spirituality because it's not about faith and works. Like it's, it's about love. You know, The whole Protestant, Protestant Reformation messed it up because they were arguing about the wrong thing, as pretty much every argument in the world ever does. It wasn't about trying to earn our way to heaven. It was about trying to allow the grace of God to transform us into his very likeness. It it, it is God's work. It's what God does and we cooperate with. Okay, so it's not about me trying to get myself across the line, trying to be the best person to prove that I can get past St. Peter at the pearly gates. It's about the fact that you have already been guaranteed salvation. By virtue of what Christ did on the cross, you have been guaranteed salvation. The question now is, to what degree are you going to allow that grace to transform you? Because whatever doesn't happen here has to happen in purgatory. Once again, that's John of the Cross's whole idea. Um, it's all about being transformed into love. And so if our, if our sights are focused on the resurrection at every moment, If our sights are focused on the relationship, and that's the key thing, focus your sights on that relationship with Christ. I desperately want the heart of Jesus. I don't want anything to get in the way. Then life becomes a training ground. Life becomes a place which is going to train you. It's going to stretch your capacity for eternity. Just to finish with two final images. St. Augustine In one of his homilies, he talks about how prayer is almost like a training in desire that that when you 're praying, your job is to try and stretch your heart and he uses the image of like a like a sack if, if you 've got the, like a like a Hessian sack and you 're trying to fit more into it you 've got to grab the edges and stretch the material and really open it so that the material can hold more and more and he says that the Christian life, and particularly the life of prayer, is a life of stretching yourself in desire so that your heart can contain more of God. Now, that, that's, that's him coming from a good understanding of heaven because I, I, I want to stretch my heart to be able to hold more of his love. St. Therese Lisieux uses a similar image. She, she talks about how she went to one of her sisters one day and she was confused. She's saying, look, when I read the Gospels... There are some points which say that everyone in heaven's the same. Everyone's got an equal share of God. But there are other parts of the gospel which sound like some people get more than others. And she was saying, how does that work? One of them's got to be wrong. And her sister in this moment of absolute genius says, imagine that everyone goes into heaven with a bucket. Some people's buckets are this big. Other people's buckets are this big. Everyone's bucket is full, okay? Everyone is full of God, but some people's hearts have been stretched bigger because of the life they lived on earth. You know, if you've lived a life of desire, a life stretching yourself in love, you walk into heaven with a big bucket, okay? And I think this is kind of how you need to encourage each other. Stretch yourself, like, like do whatever you can to stretch yourself, train yourself in love, train yourself in desire. And, and once again, I think this makes sense of the of Catholic spirituality because so much of our spirituality feels negative. So much of it's about self-denial and hardship. But if you think of it in terms of stretching your capacity for love, you know, that, that you, you live in this land of waiting. Now you, you see the same thing with marriage, Um, the whole thing of saving yourself for marriage is because you're actually stretching your desire. You know, I think the more that I reflect on this, the more I just feel it's tragic when I see young couples sleeping together before marriage because I'm like, I know you love each other, but your desire is only ever going to stay that big. But there's something about when you wait, when you sit in that uncomfortable, hungry place your desire, like you're actually stretching your hearts bigger and bigger, and, and that's what makes a good marriage. Now, heaven is, is, is the same thing, but just so much bigger. <laughs> you know, if, if you can save yourself for eternity, if we can put it that way, <laughs> um, live a life which is going to keep you perpetually hungry, so you're always desiring God. You're never satisfied here. You're always on that edge of saying, God, only you will satisfy. And, and that's the sort of life which is going to stretch your heart, You're yearning for him. It's a gamble, as we started off with, you know, with that analogy about the cookie. At the end of the day, it's a gamble. Um, but it is the biggest gamble you're ever going to have, okay? How you live today will influence tomorrow. You're your eternal tomorrow. Um, the decisions you start to make in terms of your job, your vocation, um, the vision you have for your marriage, um, all of those things are going to influence your eternity. Um, we, we, we are in the process of shaping our eternal selves now. Like we're in the process of shaping our hearts now. Focus deeply on that. Reflect deeply on it. Fall in love with the vision of it. And one day we'll find out what it was worth. That was Father Dave Callahan with The Resurrection Changes Everything. This talk was recorded as part of the UTS Catholic Society Beginning of Year Retreat. To find out more about the Catholic Society at your local university, visit unicatholics.org.au. And for more talks, interviews, and shows, visit cradio.org.au.